Let's pray together. Father, as we study your word right now, would you transform us by renewing our minds with truth so that we may discern what your will is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We pray this for your glory and our good, and we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, I'll be working off this handout on page four, and if you don't have one, I think there are copies in the back. Uh, perhaps an usher or two might be ready to give you one if you need one. So make sure you have one of these with you. I'll be on page four, God willing, our whole time together this morning. So I'd like to ask you a few questions here as we begin. Are you prepared to maintain a good conscience even if it would cost you your job? Maybe you're a medical doctor and say you are required to perform abortions and you say, I can't do that in good conscience, but it's that or my job. What would you do? Or are you willing to maintain a good conscience if it would cost you your business? Some businesses had to work through this recently when uh, our government required some to pay for what they thought were possibly abort-efficient birth control means. And they said, no, we will not do that. And it meant, in some cases, being willing to no longer operate their business. Maybe more closer to home, are you willing to maintain a good conscience if it means that you'd go to jail? We're reaching a point where it might be more common where certain crimes are called hate speeches. And if you uphold a biblical view of, of marriage and... Uh, what that entails, it might mean you end up in jail at some point. Are you willing to maintain a good conscience if it means you go to jail? You can guess how I'd answer those questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. You maintain a good conscience. It is that important. There's a man you may have heard of named Martin Luther. He's a reformer, German reformer, and he believed that maintaining a good conscience was worth not only going to jail for, but dying for. And that great reformer discovered in the Bible that God justifies people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And the Roman Catholic Church at the time strongly disagreed with his theology, and at one point he was on trial, and this is what he said, even if it meant death, these are his words translated, unless I'm convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And I would argue with Luther that you should maintain a a good conscience even if it means jail or even death. It's that important. And it would be ashamed to go to prison or die because you held a conviction about an issue based on a misinformed conscience, wouldn't it? (laughs) Wouldn't that be sad? So this morning, you can see at the top of the handout page, it says part two of four. The main question I'd like to ask is, how should you calibrate your conscience? So let's start by asking this question. Should you listen to your conscience? Should you listen to it? And I should pause there. Some of you weren't here earlier this morning where we took about an hour to define the conscience. I'll just give you my definition, and uh, you can go look pages one to three are the notes. Probably should look at them later, though. So uh, the definition is your conscience is your consciousness, your awareness of what you think is right and wrong. All right? So should you always listen to your consciousness of what you think is right and wrong? Well, I'd argue that understanding the conscience Understanding what the conscience is, how it works, should encourage you to maintain a good conscience. It should scare you to ever go against your conscience. You don't want to travel that pathway from a weak conscience to a wounded and defiled conscience to one that's emboldened to sin to one that is seared, evil and then seared. You don't want to go down that road. You don't want to go there. So John MacArthur in one of his books recounts a tragedy. He talks about an airline. uh, I had a flight 
1984, and we know this because there's a black box recovered, so you know where this is going. Uh, the, the automatic system yelled, pull up, pull up, in English. And they know from the black box that the pilots uh, speaking Spanish said, shut up, gringo. And, and minutes later, the plane plowed into a mountain and everybody on the plane died. That's such a good illustration for how our conscience works and when we try to silence it and say, I, I don't want to hear that. And you, you, you stamp it out, but that, that conscience is functioning as a pull up, pull up, you're going to die. It's, it's, it's an instrument God gives us for our good. So I'd argue that yes, yes, we should listen to our conscience. There are so many ways that you might be tempted to silence your conscience. Maybe someone here is cheating. Maybe you're a student and you're somehow cheating on your schoolwork or you're an employee or an employer and you're defrauding your employers or your employees. Or maybe you're being unfaithful to your spouse. <laughs> I go on and on just mentioning sins. And if your conscience is sensitive, you should be pricked to the heart of your sinfulness against the Lord and not push away that conviction that you feel. That's, that's your conscience speaking, and that's a good thing. When you, sh when you sin against your conscience, your conscience should be screaming at you, get right with God, do whatever it takes to make things right. That's a good thing. That's a good instrument. So yes, yes, the answer. Should you listen to your conscience? Absolutely. You definitely should listen to your conscience. But a more nuanced question is, but should you always listen to your conscience without exception? Should you always follow your conscience without exception? And that raises this next question. How reliable is your conscience? Well, this one's a little more tricky. Now, there's a principle in Romans 14 at the end of that chapter that's really important here. Paul writes, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But... Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Why? Because the eating is not from faith. So here's the principle. Four, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now I take that to mean this. Don't sin against your conscience. Listen to your conscience. To go against conscience, as Luther said, is neither safe nor right. Don't do it. Don't do it. So uh, should you always follow your conscience? I think that you should generally always follow your conscience. Where's Rich? Is he in here? Yeah, uh, 10 years ago I taught him Greek, and that was one of our jokes in class when people, students would ask, is this a rule that's always true in Greek? And my cop-out was, it's generally always true. Uh, what, generally always. What, what is generally always? It means it's a rule that's normal, and there are usually exceptions. That's, that's the nature of rules. Generally always true. Uh, and that's true with the conscience. Yes, you should generally always follow your conscience. So then you're wondering, okay, what's the exception? That's where we're going today, because the exception is where it gets messy. Uh, but calling it a general rule is, I think, just a helpful benchmark uh, way to put it. Earlier today, someone mentioned Pinocchio. Uh, I think it's brother over here. Uh, and, and the conscience. This is like a 1940s Walt Disney film, I think. Uh, so I wasn't there when it came out. Like, like well, you probably weren't either. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> But I think this is how it goes. There's this, I haven't seen this in so long. There's a blue fairy. Does that ring, ring a bell? No one, okay. We're in the age of like uh, uh, Frozen, right? So we're out of Pinocchio. But I think, I think there's a blue fairy who appoints Jiminy Cricket as Pinocchio's conscience, right? Official conscience. And, and she says when she leaves, now remember Pinocchio, always let your conscience be your guide. And then the cricket sings this catchy tune, always let your conscience be your guide. Is ringing a bell? No? Okay. Maybe that was a good illustration like a generation ago. Uh, okay, well, the question is, is that song, always let your conscience be your guide? Uh, there's a, a professor with a lord now named Ed Clowney who wrote this. He says, the Walt Disney version of Pinocchio has given us the cartoon image of conscience as a friendly cricket an effort perhaps to reduce the hostility with which people are inclined to view the promptings of conscience. Christians are called to do much better, to cultivate conscience rather than to stifle its occasional chirps. So I'd like to look briefly at Romans 14 right now. We're going to look at it in more depth tonight, 
but you're welcome to turn there. We'll just be there briefly. Tonight, we're going to, God willing, read through the whole passage. But right now, I just want to point something out to answer this question. Is your conscience theologically correct? Now, I should point out that Romans 14 is not primarily about how to calibrate your conscience. That's not the point of this chapter. As we'll discuss this evening, God willing, the point of Romans 14 is about how to love people in your church who have different standards than you do on certain issues. That's the main point. Uh, But right here, I want to mention uh, the three specific areas in Romans 14 where people within the church disagreed. And you can see them also on the table on your handout. So you can look at your Bible, look at the table, you'll see what we're talking about. So verse 2, Paul writes, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So on the table there, you see the issue? Food. The strong... And that's what Paul calls them in verse, uh, I think it's chapter 15, verse 1. The strong eat all kinds of food. The weak eat only vegetables. And every time I mention that, you don't know the self-restraint I have to not make a joke about that. I'm going on to the verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So the issue there is holy days. The strong make no distinction among days. The weak value some days more than others. And then look at verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So the issue there is wine, also alluded to, I think, in verse 17. The strong drink wine, the weak abstain. So for each of these issues, the position that the strong hold is theologically informed. And the position that the weak hold is theologically uninformed, but not heretical. Meaning a Christian can hold that view and be a good Christian. Tracking with me? Let me flesh flesh that out just a little more here. So Paul himself had a strong conscience, a strong view on this matter. In uh, chapter 15, verse 1, he identifies with the strong. But... He never explicitly commands the weak in conscience to change their conscience standards just because they were theologically misinformed. He doesn't do that. He left room for a conscience that had not yet been corrected or calibrated on specific issues. So you have to have a category for a person who is weak in their conscience on a specific issue, and that's okay. But does that mean that Paul was completely neutral on whether a believer should have a weak or strong conscience. Now, this isn't his point in Romans 14. I'm I'm extrapolating here. This is an implication, I think. And that's this. The very adjectives weak and strong imply something. And I just ask myself, why wouldn't I want my conscience to be as scripturally informed as possible? Okay, again, my goal isn't to convert everyone to become strong on particular issues. But for me personally... I want to be as theologically as informed as possible. When it comes to relating to other people, that's a different issue. We'll talk about that tonight. But when it's just me and my conscience, I want to be as theologically informed as possible. Having said that, it's also clear from this chapter that the strong in faith do not necessarily please God any more than the weak in faith. So it doesn't mean like one's inherently a better Christian. Okay, now we're ready to address our main topic here, and that's calibrating your conscience. Do you know what it means, maybe that metaphor, calibrate, is tripping you up here? Do you know what it means to calibrate something? Uh, I've been married to Jenny for over 10 years, and just last month, maybe it was this month, recently, we uh, joined the Swagger Wagon Club. You know what that is? We bought a minivan. Okay. Uh, So we've been a one-car family for all 10 years. Same Buick Century. It's out there now. It's a great car but three kids in the back and car seats, getting kind of squishy. Uh, we bought a, a minivan. So it didn't take long for me to be out on the road in the minivan with our Garmin GPS in the windshield and notice, wait a second, the speedometer's off by four miles per hour consistently. In the Buick, it's perfect. Something's wrong. What's, some, something, some instrument is wrong. Either the, the speedometer over here or over here or the GPS or all three, something's wrong. So I, I looked into this. Maybe I learned this recently. Uh, the ma- manufacturer of this particular minivan, I'll not name it, 
uh, purposely sets the speedometer to be three or four miles per hour faster than it really is. I'm like, what? I think it had to do with lawsuits, in case it gets sued. They can't, I don't know all the reasons, uh, but I'm kind of a details guy. That bothers me. Uh, <laughs> I, I like to know exactly how fast I'm going. So I looked into this. I like to calibrate this thing. And the dealership said, we, we won't touch it. So I'm stuck with a bad speedometer. It drives me nuts. So I'm always doing the math in my head. Okay. Um, maybe let's take another instrument, like a scale. I don't care how much I weigh. I don't even know how much I weigh. Maybe you know how much you weigh, but, and this would bother you. Uh, you step on a scale, and say you weigh 110 pounds, and the scale says 115. Now, I hear that that bothers some people. That, so they'd want to calibrate the scale. Right? Or let's say um, a watch or a clock. Uh, right now that clock says 11.27. My iPad says 11.29. I'm going with Apple. Uh, uh, but I like that when I'm preaching. I'll take that one when I'm preaching. Okay. Uh, so you're getting the idea. So what does it mean to calibrate? To calibrate means to align an instrument with a standard so that you can ensure it's functioning accurately. You all with, with me on this? Okay. So when it comes to calibrating your conscience, what does that mean? Your conscience is a part of you that functions like an instrument, and it doesn't always function accurately. What's the standard? For us, the standard is the Word of God. We, that's our standard. We want to calibrate our conscience with the Word of God. When it's off, we want to correct it. That's the goal is to be right on calibration with the Word of God. So, as we saw earlier this morning, your conscience is not identical to the voice of God. It could be off. That voice in your head is not necessarily what God would say. And remember that those two great principles, obey your conscience, God is the only Lord of your conscience, rarely, sometimes, they clash. And ultimately, you want to make sure God is the Lord. And if He says something, that should be what governs you, even if your conscience is chirping, like we saw in the scripture reading this morning. We'll come back to that. So, next bullet point on your handout, reasons your conscience may change. So, remember that your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong at any given point in time, and it may change for any number of reasons. I can think of at least three. So, one reason your conscience may change is that your conscience may become more hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin may deceive you into thinking something is right that is actually wrong, or that something is wrong that is actually right. And, and when people think that their conscience is broadening, it, or their mind is broadening, it's, it's just stretching. It's, it's not broadening in a good way. That's one reason. Another reason, your conscience may follow the standards of other people, like other people in your church, or your culture, your, your family, your spiritual leaders. You just go with the flow without thinking through issues. You just follow other people. So maybe you enter a new, con uh, a new context, you move across the country, join a new culture, and you just go with the flow. You, and and you, you change your views on certain issues. Another reason your conscience may change is that your conscience may conform more to truth, especially the truth of God's Word. And that's the good reason to change. Conforming more to truth, especially the truth of God's Word. So... This raises an issue. What's the difference between sinning against your conscience and calibrating your conscience? Really important to understand the difference between sinning against and calibrating your conscience. Now remember that because God is the Lord of your conscience, you're not the Lord of your conscience, God is the Lord of your conscience, He expects you as a mature believer to gradually adjust, to calibrate, to cultivate your conscience matching it with God's will as he reveals it in Scripture. So to train your conscience to match God's word is not to sin against it. It's to put it under the lordship of Christ. So to, bring, uh, to, to live according to your conscience brings blessing. To train your conscience to match God's truth brings even more blessing. And now you're thinking, okay, I think I got that principle, but how does it look in practice? What's the major distinction? So here, here I think it is in two steps. One, you're sinning against your conscience when you believe your conscience is speaking correctly and yet you refuse to listen to it. 
I'll say that again. You're sinning against your conscience. When you believe, your conscience is speaking correctly, and yet you refuse to listen to it. So the emphasis there is on the, the two words, you believe. It's what you believe is true. You must obey your conscience if you believe it's functioning accurately. It may not be functioning accurately. For example, to use that illustration I used earlier, you might be convinced in your conscience that drinking root beer is sinful. If that's genuinely what you think is the case, is it sin for you to drink root beer? Yes. One yes, okay. Uh, uh, here's something uh, Mark Dever tweeted several years ago. I still remember. He said, conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. I'll say that again. Conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. Or let's say you grew up in a culture where they taught that it is wrong, it's sinful for ladies ever to wear makeup at all. And that becomes ingrained in a lady's conscience yet she still puts on lipstick one day and she's off on her own and has an opportunity. Was that sinful? If she's convinced in her conscience that it's sinful. Yes. Is it sinful to wear with lipstick? Well, that's another issue. No. Okay. Uh, number two. Uh, second step. You're calibrating your conscience when Christ, the Lord of your conscience, teaches you through His Scripture that your conscience has been wrong in one particular area so you decide not to listen to your conscience anymore in that particular area. I'll say that again. You're calibrating your conscience when Christ, the Lord of your conscience, teaches you through His Scripture that your conscience has been wrong in a particular area, so you decide not to listen to your conscience anymore in that one area. That's calibrating your conscience. That's adjusting it. That is not sinning against it. But in the early stages of the calibration process, Deciding not to listen to your conscience may feel like you're sinning against it. And when you drink that first root beer, it's going to feel weird. Like, is this really okay? But if you're convinced that it's a, it's a good thing that God gave us, it's not sinful, and you think there are good reasons to drink it, should that uncomfortable feeling stop you? I don't think so. I don't think so. So ignoring that warning in that case is not searing your conscience. And you might be thinking, okay, I think I'm following you theoretically here. Do you have any Bible for this? Yeah, it's, it's what we read for the Scripture reading. So I'm going to read that again at Acts 9. I don't know a better illustration in the Bible to illustrate recalibrating your conscience. You're welcome to turn there or you can listen. It's in, it's in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 to 16. And Peter had to do some quick recalibration. He didn't have years here. He had on the spot calibration. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Who's he talking to? Do you see that? By no means, Lord. So he's, he's talking to God. So God said, do this, and he said, I can't. All right? And look, it, it gets worse. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. You think that was it? No, look at the next line. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up to heaven. Three times. God saying, you know, the Lord of the conscience, the Lord of everything, telling you, it's okay to do this. I want you to do this. And, and he has the gall to say, I, I can't do that. My conscience won't let me. There's a problem here. You see the problem? He's got something in his conscience, a conviction, that shouldn't be there. And he had to to take it out. He had to calibrate his conscience so it matched what the Lord told him to do. Now, in this case, it's eating certain kind of animals. Maybe this is confusing. The, what's, the background here is that uh, under the Mosaic law, the Jews had strict 
food laws about what they can and cannot eat, and, and those were embedded in Peter's conscience. And certain kinds of animals that I love, like bacon, he couldn't eat. Uh, uh, so that's why he, he protested. Bacon, by the way, is his victory food. New covenant food right there. All right, so clearly, Peter's faith in Christ was not weak. But are you going to call him a weak believer? Well, on this issue about what food he ate, he was weak. We're talking about Peter, the apostle to the Gentiles, the person who preached and 5,000 came to the Lord. This is not some, well, he couldn't be immature, but in general, he's a mature Christian, and he's weak. I, I say that because often when you talk about weak and strong, not just often, almost all the time, people never will concede, I'm weak in this area. It's always the assumption is, I'm strong, because I can do this or because I sacrifice my rights not to do this, but whatever it is, I'm strong. <sighs> you might want to have some humility and recognize places where you're weak. We'll talk about that more later. Okay, so let's, uh, let's explain this a little more. How do you calibrate your conscience? How do you do this? Two basic principles here. Number one, calibrate your conscience by educating it with truth. So as best you can, try to discern why you hold certain convictions. Is it, is it based on truth, especially the truth that God has revealed in Scripture? That's the main idea. This isn't something you do in a vacuum this is something you do with other godly believers, and if you have godly family, godly church leaders, this is something you can do in community. Second, calibrate your conscience with due process. Now, this is a wisdom issue. I mean, in, in Acts 10, Peter didn't have time. On some issues, it might take years to calibrate your conscience on a particular issue, and that's okay. But the idea is, are you in the process? Are you willing to rethink a particular conviction of yours if you're convinced the Bible conflicts with your conviction? Are you willing to rethink that, even if it takes a while? I'm not, maybe calibration is too mechanical. Try this analogy, uh, cultivating a garden. So imagine that God gives you the gift of a beautiful garden. And what tends to happen to gardens? They get weeds. And you need to pull the weeds. So you need to cultivate that garden, and sometimes you need to add plants that aren't there. So the idea is you tend that garden. Your, your conscience is like that garden. You've got to tend the garden. The idea is, this attitude is, Lord, this conscience, this garden is yours. So keep what's here. May that flower weed out what shouldn't be there. Plant what needs to be there. That should be your attitude when it comes to your conscience. Now, you notice how I stated that. Uh, uh, calibrate your conscience with by educating it with truth and with due process. The truth idea, I didn't say exclusively with the Bible. I said with truth, especially the truth of God's Word. And here's why. Sometimes you need to calibrate your conscience with truth in the Bible, sometimes with truth outside the Bible, and sometimes both. And you might be getting nervous. What do you mean truth outside the Bible? Uh, like this. Uh, perhaps you think that a certain form of birth control is okay. But then you learn that it's likely an abortive fashion. It causes abortions. So then you change your conviction because you learn truth outside the Bible, namely about how that works. And you go, oh, oh, if that's what it's really doing, then I shouldn't be. You understand? So this is especially true in the issue of ethics. We'll talk about that more later. But uh, there, there are facts you can learn outside the Bible that you need to to take into consideration when you form convictions. And sometimes you hold a conviction because you don't understand truth outside the Bible accurately. You, you with me on that? All right. So let's, uh, let's look at some examples. I'll do this very quickly. Examples that illustrate how you might calibrate your conscience. And these fall on a range from more strict to less strict for the most part. And you might laugh at some of these. Like if I made root beer a big example, you'd laugh. That's stupid. Well, this is a thought experiment. And for people who, for whom these are really conscience issues, it's not stupid. It's life and death. So these thought experiences, you can then use as principles to apply to what you might be wrestling with. So, uh, and these, these uh, examples I give reflect my cultural location and my, my friend J.D. Crowley, I mentioned this morning, he's a missionary in Cambodia, and we are co-authoring a book on the conscience, and this is reflecting our work. Uh, so I'm going to pull some examples from him as well, and 
He's a Cambodian now. So one more, one more qualification before I get to the examples. I'm not sharing these examples for the purpose of convincing you to accept my view on these issues. That would take a lot longer. These are just illustrations of how, what it might look like to calibrate your individual conscience. And it's not even raising the issue of, okay, then how do you interact with other people who might differ? That's tonight. This is just, right now, just so we're clear, this is you and your conscience, how you might calibrate it, and I'm going to reflect on that, all right? So this shouldn't cause church division or anything like that. This is just you and your conscience. All right, uh, first example, guys wearing shorts or jeans. All right, so you think, what in the world? Here's where this is coming from. When I was younger and living at home with my parents, my, my uh, family was part of a very culturally conservative church at one point. And that church had a subculture with what I think are unusually strict dress standards. And among other things, they thought it was best if guys did not wear shorts or jeans. And the reasoning was that shorts are immodest and that jeans are historically associated with rebellion and sexual immorality. So whether you're mowing your lawn or playing flag football or whatever, the guys in that culture would wear either khaki pants or nylon wind pants. And I moved into this culture when I was, I think, a senior in high school. And I remember when the pastor's wife of that culture came up to her house once, I was mowing the lawn in shorts and a tank top. And I didn't know anything. But later I learned that it was scandalous. So uh, I stopped doing that. Uh, and I kind of adopted that culture and just went with the flow. I wanted to be a good Christian. I wanted to do what the leaders were teaching. I just wanted to be a good Christian, and that's what everyone did. And that kind of sort of worked its way into my conscience so that when I moved away from that subculture, I had to think through this because then no one else was following that anymore. I was like, why am I doing this? And then I had to rethink it. Do Are shorts inherently immodest? Well, they can be, but inherently. Uh, are, are pants communicating sinful sensuality right now? Uh, jeans don't necessarily do that. They could, but not necessarily. So I just inform my conscience with truth outside the Bible and my cultural location, and under the Lordship of Christ, I recalibrated my conscience to wear shorts or jeans in certain circumstances. Make sense? Now, you might laugh at this example because it's so silly, but it's not silly when you're the person with the conscience issue. It's life and death. And it's typical for how a strong person might react to the scruples of a weak person. That issue? You're, you're wrestling with that issue? What's wrong with you? Just, just do that. No, 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 no. You want to be loving and gentle and patient and, and inform the conscience with truth and let God do that work. Don't ever encourage someone to do something prematurely against their conscience. Okay, another example. We've got to go faster. Uh, using certain instruments in worship. So my, my friend J.D. Crowley, missionary in Cambodia, when he first went there, he went to, he was, he's at a, in a tribal area of Cambodia. The most important musical instruments in many of the Southeast Asia tribes is the brass gong, gong. And a set of gongs consists of five larger rhythm gongs of various sizes, and the largest is three feet across, and then eight smaller melody gongs played much like bells in a bell choir here in the States. And he says, I have not heard these in person, he says the sound is deep and lush and entrancing. But when he suggested initially to the new believers that they use the gongs to worship God, they unanimously rejected that idea. Why? Because in their minds, the gongs were so strongly associated in the, with demon worship, their conscience wouldn't let them use the gongs to worship God. So what do you think J.D. did? Use them anyway. No, he said... He said, I'm not going to push this matter, uh, but, but what he did is he reminded them occasionally that everything good belongs to God, including gongs, music belongs to God, Satan stole these things for his evil purposes, but someday when your consciences are stronger, you might decide to use these beautiful instruments to praise the one true and living God. And a few years later, the leaders approached J.D. and said, it's time. They had educated their consciences with God's truth that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So they set a day and dozens of tribal leaders gathered from many villages to play gongs and write new songs 
to praise the true and living gong, God with gongs. <laughs> okay. Fifteen years later, J.D. writes now, in some villages, the only people who have gongs and use them are Christians. He says the rest have sold theirs to buy motorcycles and TVs. <laughs> now, what does this illustrate? This illustrates that another way you can acquire a weak conscience, besides the first example, which is growing up in a particular culture, another way is by former association. That's what we have in 1 Corinthians 8, former association. So the conscience of the new believers in Corinth wouldn't allow them to eat any meat at all, not because of their strict upbringing, but because eating meat was so closely associated with pagan ritual sacrifice that their tender consciences wouldn't or couldn't eat meat without thinking of the gods. You track that? And so that's the second reason. A third reason, which isn't in that example, is that you might just have a very timid personality and, and results in a weak conscience in some areas. No matter what you do, you feel guilty. All right, third example here. Must go faster. S celebrating Halloween. When I was a young child, my family celebrated Halloween each year, and basically we would dress up as something silly and go door-to-door -door and get candy. I thought it was great. I got candy, and it was fun to dress up. Uh, but at some point, we, we ended up in more conservative circles, and um, someone suggested to our parents that it's associated with occult practices, it's demonic, and you shouldn't have anything to do with Halloween. So instead of dressing up and getting free candy, we would turn off all the lights in the house and go to Chuck E. Cheese and eat pizza and play games. Now, for me at the time, that was a win-win, candy, pizza, <laughs> no problem. But what happened is it developed a culture in, in my own household growing up, and after that I thought, maybe Halloween really is wrong. So when I, my wife and I had our first children, what do we do? It's Halloween now. So I had to think through this one. And what is the date? I think Halloween's this week, right? This Friday? Uh, what are you going to do? Uh, now, the issue isn't what you're going to do. It's why are you going to do what you're going to do. And for us, what we have chosen to do is now we celebrate Halloween each year. Don't fire me yet. Listen, hear me out. Here's what we do. We do it in a minimalist way. We dress up our kids like Little Bo Peep or a, their favorite animal or something. And then we go door to door in our neighborhood to get candy. And we also put pumpkins on our front porch. Last night I carved pumpkins with all three of my kids and they each designed their face and we put little candles in them and lit them and put them on our front porch. We're gonna give out candy, God willing, on Friday. That's our plan. It's, it's a fun family tradition. But that's not why we do it. The main reason we do it is we think it's a strategic, strategic evangelistic tradition. What, evangelistic? Yeah, what other day of the year do all your neighbors expect you to knock on their door? Seriously, is there any other day? So we take it as an opportunity to make sure, renew acquaintances with everyone in our neighborhood, remind them who we are, show them our smiley faces, uh, just putting back on the relational map and having friendly relations. I guarantee you they're not thinking this is a cultic. They're, they would think we're weird if we didn't do it. So in our particular context, we think it's strategic, missionally, to celebrate the holiday. Okay, uh, Next example, using only the KJV. I'll go fast here. So when I was young, my family attended a church, one church for just a little while that said the KJV, the King James Version, is the only translation uh, English-speaking Christians should use. Now, I, didn't, I wasn't there long. That never made it into my conscience, but it wasn't hard to refute that one because if you just study the history of translations, of Bible translation, of English translations, uh, that's a really, really weak position, and I just educated my Bible, educated my conscience with truth about Bible translation, and I happily use other translations. Um, I think the King James Version is a great translation, and that today it belongs in a museum. That's my personal view. That's just my personal view. Um, do you, what do you use, ESV? So I'm good. Okay. Uh, all right. Whew, that was a close one. Uh, another issue, listening to particular styles of music. Okay. This was personally a tough one. So I grew up in, in, in conservative context where my godly church leaders taught that particular styles of music, especially contemporary forms, inherently communicate sinful sensuality and rebellion in all times and all cultures. 
uh, it took me a few years to work through this one because it was so deeply ingrained in my conscience. But after, I think, educating my conscience about the nature of music and how its cultural associations may change over time, this is no longer a conscience issue for me. Now, that said, I have many issues. I have many friends for whom this is a conscience issue still. They have deep convictions about this, and I respect them, I respect their convictions, and I frankly love their music. So there's no rift there. We agree with truth in the Bible that God's people should be holy and not worldly, no question. The debate is not what does the Bible say, what, what's the truth of the Bible. We disagree about how we understand truth outside the Bible regarding the nature of music, its associations, and its inherent connotations. Okay, I'll just leave it there. Another example, being a sports fanatic. So my first examples are similar in that they move from a more strict view to a less strict view, but it works the other way. So when I was young, I was a sports fanatic. I would get up before anyone in my home, I'm the second of seven children, head out to the end of the driveway, get the newspaper. In those days, there were no tablets or smartphones, and I would come in and read the sports page cover to cover. That was crazy. And then go to school. I, just, I, was, I played all the sports I could, baseball, basketball, football, hockey, I'm watching sports on TV whenever I have an opportunity. I had collections of sports cards, had posters of sports players on my wall, my bedroom. I was all into this stuff. Even today, if you quiz me, what happened in the, in the 80s and early 90s? I know, I know. I don't know what happened after that, but I know what happened then. And what happened? Well, the Lord convicted me that though that, the, what I was doing wasn't inherently sinful, it was not the best use of time for me. That just because something is not inherently wrong doesn't mean you should do it. And I thought, what would best please the Lord with the limited time I have? So for me, though I still love sports and I still follow from a distance and occasionally will watch highlights or very rarely watch a whole game of something, but I enjoy that, but I don't give myself wholeheartedly to it anymore because I don't think that's the best way for me to use the short life God has given to me. That said, I have lots of friends who have given themselves wholeheartedly and they make them family events, their ways to minister to other people, and I don't judge them at all. But for me, that's where I've landed. Maybe I'm weak on this, uh, but that's, that's where, where I am. Here's another example. Maybe I should skip that one. You guys have Sunday evening services. Well, we'll, we'll talk about it. Okay, so having, having Sunday evening church services. All right. I grew up in churches where they, they had Sunday evening church services regularly, and I noticed that that became part of the conscience of some people in the church, that if another church didn't have a Sunday evening service, it was necessarily a compromising church. Okay, so the reason is good churches have Sunday evening services because we do, and they don't, and they probably don't have one so that people can have me time and watch football or something. That, that's got to be the reason. They're just not committed. They're compromising, whatever. That's, that's the reasoning involved. But that's, what does the Bible have to say about having Sunday evening services in addition to Sunday morning services? guys are good. That's everything it says. <laughs> uh, nothing. Uh, so you could argue that based on biblical principles, it'd be wise to, but it'd be just that, an application. It's not uh, obeying a direct command. I'm seeing a, a few of you nodding who are elders, so I feel safe. All right, uh, next issue, Bible reading. All right, so when I was in high school, I started a Bible reading routine where I'd get up early and read through my print Bible First was KJV, then it was NASB, and I'd do that every morning before anyone else in the house was awake. And there's, it started to bother me that my dad would get up early and just get right in the car and drive to work without reading his Bible. I'm thinking, come on, spiritual leader of the home, read your Bible. Uh, and I was being self-righteous about it. Um, in my conscience, you had to read your Bible every day. It had to be a print Bible, and you had to do it in the morning. Before you eat, Bible before breakfast. No, no Bible, no breakfast. Uh, seriously, that was in my conscience. Well, come to find out, my dad, who was driving 70 miles each way to work so that we could live closer to the church we were part of, was listening to an audio Bible, like you know, the whole thing about every three months. He was just going crazy fast through this thing because he was, had so long to drive. He's listening to sermons and he's praying in the car. He just wasn't reading his print Bible in the morning. Now, I've since grown up, I highly endorse audio Bibles, and I recommend you listen to them anytime, whether it's the morning or whenever else. Okay, so that's, I got over that one. Here's another, not biting your fingernails or keeping your room clean. 
you're laughing. Okay, here's, here's what's happening. This is with uh, parenting. You may develop family rules. You have family, any of you parents have family rules? Things that you say to your children, do this, don't do this. And if the child said, where's that in the Bible? All you got is Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And that's all you need. It really is all you need. So those are called family rules, not, not God's commands that are apply at all times and all places. So you might say to your child, don't bite your fingernails or whatever. Keep, keep your room clean or make your bed in the morning. When the parent says that, that becomes the family rule that the child must obey. From the child's perspective, if they don't do that, they're sinning, right? But what happens is that children, and sometimes parents, don't distinguish between God's rules and family rules. In the child's conscience, they merge. So a child can grow up and be a fully grown adult and look over at another fully grown adult and think, they're biting their nails. What is wrong with them? I can't believe they're doing that over a hygiene issue. What happened? Uh... It's complicated, but part of the process is they let a family rule get merged with God's rules, and it wasn't clear to them. Now, I have, my kids are ages 6, 3, and 2. I'm, I'm at the, the beginning stage of this. J.D. Crowley has six kids. His youngest is in high school and lives at home with him. He's way further along the path, and here's what he told me. He said, somewhere here, he said, I found that it's impossible, almost impossible, to keep your children from internalizing family rules so that they become matters of conscience. You can tell them over and over that this is not a moral issue, but just a family rule or convention or matter of personal hygiene. But the, the rule still worms its way into their already overpacked consciences. However, he says, the repeated reminders are not without profit, and when your children get older and begin the task of calibrating their conscience, they'll be helped by the distinctions you make now. Oh, I'm torn what to do here. Uh, I'm going to skip a few. I don't want to skip the tattoo one because that's the one you all want to hear. <laughs> uh, uh, the driving speed limit thing, that's an easy one. Should you ever drive over the speed limit in Minnesota on a highway when you're passing? Hey, I know this. I moved here a year and a half ago and I read the book. You probably haven't read the book for a while. I read the book cover to cover. And I highlighted on page 24 of the Minnesota driver's license manual this. The speed limit on two-lane highways with a posted speed of 55 miles per hour or higher is increased by 10 miles per hour when the driver is lawfully passing another vehicle in the same direction. I like educating my conscience with that kind of information. <laughs> That's good stuff. Okay, another example. Uh, getting a tattoo. We'll probably have to stop after this one. Getting a tattoo. 40% of adults ages 18 to 40 in the United States have tattoos. That's staggering. This is really common in our culture now, and it's becoming more common. So you need to think through this one. Should a Christian get a tattoo? Now, some people answer that question by quoting the only verse in the Bible that directly addresses tattoos. That's Leviticus 19.28, which says, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. I don't think that's decisive. Here's why. I don't think that Christians... Right now, that is believers under the new covenant, I don't think that Christians are under the Mosaic law. And that's a big issue, uh, but I'm just going to make that statement and move on here. Further, tattoos in Moses' ancient Near, Near Eastern context communicated something different than what they communicate in our culture. Okay, so I don't think it's inherently sinful to have a tattoo today. Is that scandalous? I hope not. So I, I don't think it's, you can't say you've got a tattoo. That is inherently sinful. But what motivates you to get a tattoo may be sinful. Further, there might be good reasons not to get a tattoo, like your body will change over the next several decades, and so will that tattoo. Uh, do you really want those markings on your skin permanently? Your tastes may change. What you think is artsy and creative and attractive now may strike you as ugly and dull and immature later. But on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being bad reason, or weak reasons and 10 being strong reasons, those arguments I just gave are on the lower end of the scale. I've got a 10 out of 10, at least for me. 
here's my, my argument. A tattoo makes you less missional. Why less missional? Yeah. So there are places all over the world where having a tattoo limits your ministry for the sake of the gospel. Because some people in the world think tattoos are demonic markings. Others won't let you near their kids if they see you have a tattoo. I can go on and on. I've talked to some missions agencies and said, what do you do when, when missionaries have tattoos? Said, oh, it's so tricky. You've got to make sure you can cover them up, that people don't find out about them. It's so hard for international relations. You know, so from my perspective, even though I live in America now, I don't know what God has for me in the future. I don't want to cut off opportunities to be missional anywhere. So I'm not going to get a tattoo. That reasoning is decisive for me. For me, that's where I am. If you have a tattoo, I don't judge you. You, you have that freedom. Uh, I don't think it's the best way for me to do it, but I welcome you. That's Romans 14. We'll go there more tonight. Oh, we've got to move ahead uh, because I'm over. If, that's cl- if that clock is right, I'm over. Um, uh, so much more to talk about. Let me just let's close with this. Uh, what do you do when your conscience tempts you to despair? And you know what I'm talking about. As a Christian, right now, you may sin and find yourself wallowing in guilt and your conscience is pummeling you. You sinned and it's right. You did, you did sin. What do you do? Well, fortunately, we don't have to wallow in that guilt. Listen, just listen to these words like water running through your dirty soul and let it cleanse you. Just listen from Hebrews 10, 22. This is why we can draw near to God and have full assurance. He says, because we've had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water, Jesus can cleanse your conscience so that you can draw near to God. He is the reason that you can now have a clear conscience. And as we sang a moment ago in, the, in that song, Before the Throne of God Above, I asked Rich if you might change the word, when Satan tempts me to despair, to conscience. So you know, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, change that to when conscience tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Then what do you do with it? What do you do? And this, if you can just remember that song, you'll have a game plan. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just is satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon me. That's the solution. That's where we go. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the power of the cross. Thank you that Jesus lived and died and rose again for sinners like us. We began by asking you to transform us by renewing our minds with truth so that we may discern what your will is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So thou, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Let's stand and sing these very words together before the throne of God above. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. 